The sermon this morning is on Hebrews chapter 12, 3 through 13. We're going to be reading Hebrews 12, 1 through 13 for contextual purposes, so please open to Hebrews 12. You can go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Hebrews 12, 1 through 13. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as they seem best. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Sojourn, this is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And uh, when I was ironing my shirt today, I realized I was wearing Eagles colors. Uh, so <laughs> that was unintentional. Uh, I almost wore a blue and red shirt, so take it for what it's worth. So I uh, hope you enjoy watching the Super Bowl, though, this afternoon. And if you don't care about that, uh, Justin Timberlake is performing at halftime if you'd like to watch that. So uh, I know one of our pastors is especially excited about that this morning. But hey, let's, uh, before we jump into God's Word, let's go ahead and, uh, and go to the Lord in, in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we get to gather together this morning Man, what a gift it is every week. Lord, I know the weather's not great this morning, but I just thank you that my brothers and sisters are here. I thank you that we get to sing together. I thank you that we get to open God's word together. I thank you for those that are here this morning that are visiting. Maybe they're invited by a friend or trying to find a church community to be a part of, or maybe you're just checking out who you are and are, are curious or searching or seeking you. Lord, I pray that no matter where we are this morning on our journey, that you would draw us closer to you this morning. Father, we're thankful for your faithfulness. We're thankful for your grace. You are so kind to us, so consistent with us. 
And so this morning I pray that you would help us to lay aside distractions, encumbrances, hindrances that would keep us as we open up your word from receiving what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to be attentive now. And may your word take root in our hearts today to the praise and glory of your name. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, every person uh, has a bunch of likes and dislikes in life. I think all of us could resonate with that. There's things that we like, there's things that we dislike, and for the most part, uh, all those things are, are, there's not really a right or wrong to them. Uh, It's really just a matter of preference, right? You could like the Eagles or the Patriots, and it's not really a matter of that being right or wrong, really. That's true. It's just a preference, and and it it doesn't just have to be things related to, to sports or food or music or clothing. Sometimes, some of us have strong reactions to words. In fact, there's something called word aversion, Words that when you hear them, they invoke an emotional response or significant aversion. Words like moist. Yeah, I know some of you are cringing already, right? Crevice. Flim. Loaf. Like, we just, we just don't like those words. There's even been scientific studies done on why people have word aversion. But sometimes we don't like a particular word simply because of what it means or implies. A word like mundane or monotonous, they just sound boring. Vomit, insomnia, we just don't even like those because of what it implies, what it brings to mind for us. But one word that whether you're a child or an adult, all of us generally don't like, especially when it's applied to us in our own life, is a word we heard and we see in our text today. The word discipline. Now this kind of discipline doesn't mean discipline like I'm disciplined to get up at 5.45 in the morning so I can read my Bible, so I can exercise. It isn't the kind of discipline that it takes to be on a strict diet. The discipline that we tend not to like is something done to regulate or change behavior. And most definitions of discipline actually say that discipline is punishment used to correct behavior. But that's where the problem is. Discipline can certainly be punitive. It can certainly bring punishment. But is that all that it is? As we get into our text today, we'll see how God defines and purposefully uses discipline in our lives And that the motivation for discipline, from God's perspective, from his doing, isn't malicious. It isn't mean. It isn't cruel. It's out of love. As you and I find ourselves living in a broken world, with brokenness in us and brokenness around us, my hope is is that God will use his word to once again show us his purposeful love to show us his purposeful faithfulness towards his people. And that even when things are difficult, even when things are hard, that you and I will not lose heart, but have hope and find joy as we fix our eyes on Christ our King. So let's go ahead and jump into Hebrews chapter 12, the text that Joey read for us this morning. And may God bless the preaching of his word. This text that we looked at, or that we're going to be looking at, verses 3 through 13, are directly connected back to verses 1 and 2, which is why we read all of that this morning. 
in a world of distraction, in a world of difficulty, of sin and suffering, you and I can run the race with endurance that's set before us. And we can do that by having a laser focus on Jesus. Jesus, the author of our faith. Jesus, the founder of our faith, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who willingly went to a cross, despising its shame, and went for joy. Joy that he would be with the Father again as he had been for all eternity. Joy of bringing us with him to the Father. The race and the journey, though, that we find ourselves on in this life, though, are long and difficult. And this little local church that the author is writing to is struggling. Even with the amazing truth and the reminder of verses 1 and 2, he knows that they may be feeling fatigued on the race. They may be feeling, feeling weary. And in a broken down world, maybe you are too. So the author continues here in verse 3 with some additional encouragement and exhortation for them and for us. And it begins with this banner statement, consider Jesus. Very similar to fixing your eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, consider, contemplate, dwell on who Jesus is. Jesus who endured from sinners intense and ridiculous hostility. We were reading this week, if you've been doing the Community Bible Reading Journal, which we have some more in the back for this week. We were in Luke this week, and in particular in Luke chapter 23, and I was just reflecting on thinking about the people around them, around Jesus, and the the viciousness in their actions. How vicious they were in their actions and their words toward him. Yet he endured. He remained steadfast on the path that the Father had called him to. He did not waver, and he did it for you. He did it for your salvation. On the cross, he took on the punishment for your sin. Sin at its root is rebellion against God, against him and his kindly rule in your life. It's asserting ourselves as God instead of submitting ourselves to God. And all of us sin. But Jesus died in your place. He died in your place so that you would no longer be separated from God because of your sin, but instead could be reconciled to God because he paid the penalty for your rebellion. It's something he gives to you freely when you place your faith in him. He did this for your salvation, but he also did it for your encouragement. That you would not grow weary, that you would not grow faint-hearted as you find yourself in this messed up world. That you would not give up as he did not give up. That you would not waver or swerve as he did not waver or swerve, but remain focused on the life that God has called you to. See, Jesus is the supreme inspirer of faith. He's the supreme enabler of faith. Faith, not for the sake of faith, not as a blind leap, but a faith in the faithfulness of God. And Jesus does this for us all the more in the midst of the now and not yet of this life. That Christ has accomplished the fullness of our salvation and one day will come again to bring us home and to make us whole. Yet we find ourselves now in this place of being in between. We struggle in this life. And the reason we struggle in this life is because sin still remains. It remains within us. Even as followers of Christ, we still struggle with sin. It remains in the world around us. People sin against us. Whether that be brothers and sisters in the church or in the world outside of the church, 
sin, people sin against us, and we also just deal with the effects of sin in a broken world, a world that groans for renewal, sin within and sin without. But the author says, but listen, you haven't fought against sin and its effects, at least not yet, to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you haven't done so to the point of death, but Jesus has. So look to him, focus on him, keep your eyes on him, consider him. The author is encouraging us in the midst of our struggle, we can look to Jesus who endured perfectly and he did so for you. But then we get to verse five and the author pivots off this truth and he pivots off this truth to press in and pastor us a little bit more. Because all of us have things that happen to us in our lives. Challenges and difficulties that we encounter. Things that happen to us either directly or just things that we see around us and experience. Maybe it's loss or disappointment, unfulfilled hopes, dashed dreams, difficult relationships, sickness, disease, death. And all of those things that happen to you, they can cause you to react in a few ways. You can become angry or you can become apathetic. But whether you react in anger or apathy, if you are a follower of Jesus, both are rooted in forgetting something absolutely paramount for your life. In those moments, when you gravitate towards anger or gravitate towards apathy, you've forgotten who you are. And you've forgotten whose you are. See, the nuance that the author teases out is that our struggle in this life is not just a struggle where you're just some passive participant or or just some passive observer. Our struggles have personal purpose because our Father uses them for our good. In verses 5 through 10, he unpacks this rich reality for us. Let's read that again. Verses 5 through 10. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." The first huge thing we see in this verse is that he calls you a son. Now, I mentioned this back in November when we were uh, in uh, preaching on Orphan Sunday and talking about adoption and being brought into God's family. So it's worth mentioning here again this morning because of its significance. When the Bible uses the word son in talking about God's people, it's intentional. It's intentional, though, not because men are better than or superior to women. Not at all. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says there is neither male nor female, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. That when you and I, when anyone comes to the foot of cross, no talents, no skin color, no accolades, no riches or gender, warrant, favor or disfavor. 
We all come as slaves to sin, needing to be set free. But he calls us sons because in, our, in ancient culture, it was the firstborn son who received the majority of the inheritance of his father. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, along with the rest of Scripture, is that all of you who are in Christ, men and women, all of you receive the benefits of being just like the firstborn son. God's going to treat you just like his child, just like his son, meaning you're entitled to the full inheritance of all the riches of grace from the Father. But in the midst of our sufferings, In the midst of our struggles in this life, we may forget that that's who we are in Christ. We may forget that God is our loving and good Father who we belong to. Maybe you feel like sometimes God doesn't care, that that He's not actually good, that you are not cherished by Him, that you are not loved by Him. Have you forgotten who you are? The author asks. Then quoting Proverbs 3, though, he reminds us that the discipline of the Lord is born not out of spite or vindication, but out of love, love that a father has for his son. See, the term used here for discipline is a common term that relates to child rearing, and it has the sense of instruction or training or correction. But here's where it's important for us to ask the question and be clear with the answer. What then is discipline? What counts as discipline? Well, here's a a definition for us. It is anything that God uses in your life to instruct, train, or correct. Anything that God uses in your life to instruct, train, or correct. Now, here's what that means. That means that God uses the brokenness of our world to help us in our brokenness. That's the redeeming nature of our God. That he could use even the brokenness in our world to help us with our very own brokenness. He can use difficulty and trial, struggle and suffering to make you more like Jesus. This is where our thoughts and feelings on the word discipline perhaps need to be adjusted. Just because you're receiving discipline, just because you're going through difficulty does not mean that it's punitive. Just because that's happening in your life doesn't mean that God is punishing you. Instead, we have to see discipline as corrective and redemptive. It's corrective in the sense that God is seeking to always kind of course correct in your life that you might run that race that's before you, staying on the narrow path that leads to life. It's redemptive in that God is pulling you back. He's pulling you back from slavery from to sin. He's pulling you out of darkness into his light, places that even as followers of Christ, we gravitate back towards. Always seeking to bring about redemption. And he does this precisely because he loves you. God disciplines those he loves. Now to drive his point home, he gives an illustration by comparison of the discipline of an imperfect earthly father, and he does so in these next few verses. And and he begins by making the argument by saying, what father doesn't discipline his son? And, And if you're not disciplined, then you're likely not sons. Now in our current culture, this is problematic though. Because there are a lot of parents 
inside the church and outside the church that don't discipline their children, that don't take this seriously. Now here's a quick side note to parents. God makes it clear that we are given the awesome responsibility, the awesome privilege of disciplining and discipling our children, of pointing them to Christ and Christ-likeness. And when we don't do this, we not only do a disservice to our children, we also disobey our God. But listen, I know that can be a struggle for many of us. And so if you this morning feel like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to discipline my kids. I don't know how to disciple my kids in a God-honoring way. Let me recommend two things to you this morning. First, remember that you're a part of a church family of brothers and sisters. And so look to your brothers and sisters for help. Look to another mom and dad, someone who's even just striving to do this. And imperfectly so, but is just striving to do this and say, I, I don't know how to do this. Do you? Can we work, on to, to work together on this? What are you learning? How are you figuring this out? It's not something you're called to do alone. The second thing that I'd recommend to you is just to get a solid resource that would help you in this. The first thing is just find a book or something like that that would help you. You could pick up Paul Tripp's most recent book, which is brilliantly titled Parenting. Yes. Okay, great. Like, let me learn about parenting. It's a great resource. Pick that up and read it. Another great book is Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Them Grace. Dads, if you're a podcast listener, listen to the podcast Dad Tired. Or if you're a mom, check out the podcast Risen Motherhood. Both just have great resources to encourage you as you seek to be a faithful mom or dad. As followers of Jesus, our parenting should look different than the parenting of the world because we have the hope of the gospel and we have the model of a perfect father. And we see that that's the point of the author here. Our earthly fathers didn't always get it right. And for some of you, you know that in a very real way. I would guess all of us know that at least in a small way, that our our dads didn't always get it right. But for others of you, This morning, even when you hear the word father and discipline, it brings up difficulty in your heart, in your life right now. There's there's personal trauma there, either because of abandonment or abuse. And if that's you this morning, first off, just hear from me and from our church, I am sorry that that was your experience. That is not okay. And is not the way that God designed and intended for that to be. But his point is, in all of this, is that earthly fathers that did attempt discipline, even not in a right way, at some level, they, the reason they did it is because we are their children. We belong to them. As a dad, I strive to discipline my kids because they're my kids. God has entrusted them to me. He's called me to steward them well, to help them understand more of who he is and what it looks like to live in this world. And my kids could tell you now, and certainly we'll be able to tell you in the future, that I do not always get it right, both in discipline and discipleship. I get frustrated with them. I get angry with them. At times I'm irritable or just flat out lazy. No dad gets it right all the time. But our Heavenly Father gets it right 100% of the time. 
And so if we expect earthly parents to discipline, shouldn't we expect all the more our Father, our perfect heavenly Father in, that gives us life by His Spirit, shouldn't we expect Him to discipline? Listen, God never gives any discipline in your life that is not ultimately for your good. And that supreme good is to become more like Christ, to share in holiness. See, the goal of his discipline in your lives is to make you more like Jesus. Discipline from God can't be about him exacting wrath on you. It can't be that. Wrath is reserved for rebels. But in Christ, you are a child of God. In Christ, you are a beloved son, a beloved daughter. In Christ, Christ who bore the wrath of God for you. So when God brings discipline in your life, in whatever way, shape, or form it comes, it's not because he's exacting wrath on you. No, he's taking a piece of marble or stone. He's chiseling us into the image of his son. John 15 says that we are the vine and Christ is, I'm sorry, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches, but that God is the vine dresser and he prunes us and he cuts and he cuts away the things that are dead so that we might bear more fruit. It could be a painful process, but it's for our good. God is seeking to bring this about even through trial, even through suffering in this life. He's scraping the barnacles of sin and his sin-tainted life off of us. He's peeling away darkness so that we might shine brightly for his glory. Our God is committed to making you and me more like his son, more like our Savior. God disciplines those he loves. And what a gift to us. The problem, though, is that we just generally don't like discipline of any kind. And perhaps even more so today. Maybe this has been this way for a long time, but it seems like in our culture today, one of our biggest struggles is that we do not like to live under authority. We rebel against it. And so because of that, in our Western culture, we can see any form of discipline as negative. And ultimately, that's rooted in a wrong understanding of what it means to be loved. On top of that, we live in a permissive culture and an easily offended culture. And so when someone, even if it's a brother or sister in Christ and community or God himself, speaks into or against what we're thinking or what we're doing, we're often hurt and offended instead of thankful. But no matter where it is, where we struggle with the realities, we've often forgotten, we've often ignored that God is sovereign, not you. We've forgotten or ignored that God cares for you, and he always has your best in mind. As one pastor says, how easy it is for us to think we are out of God's favor when circumstances turn against us. Indeed, there is nothing more perilous in trials than to conclude that God has forgotten or betrayed us. And this early church was wrestling with this reality. And my guess is at times you do as well. The truth of this text from Hebrews 12 lines up with the truth of James 1. James chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, 
when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. For what purpose? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him and to those who he loves. Suffering and trial produce steadfastness. They produce within us the ability to withstand and endure in a broken world. So don't grow weary. Don't regard it lightly. Don't miss what God is up to. Endure, persevere, keep moving forward in faith and be encouraged. Your Father is at work in you. He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. You belong to Him. What an enormous reality. We are His children by faith and in Christ. His children whom He loves so much So much that he will not leave you where he found you. So much that he will not leave you as you are. He loves you too much for that. So how does this understanding change then how we look at trials and difficulty? What leads to the next few verses and really the heart of the application of this text. Something that we absolutely cannot miss. Look at verse 11 again. For for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Man, isn't that just freeing to see that? That God's word acknowledges that there's pain in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of discipline. As I said earlier, when we talk about discipline from God, it can be anything that God allows or anything that God brings into your life that's challenging and difficult. And he could be doing it for a variety of reasons. He may be doing it to root sin out of your life. That God brings discipline into your life and difficulty and trial to crush idolatry in your life. To root out sin that's deep within your heart. He could bring discipline into your life to rebuke you because of sin. It says that we're chastised as sons to rebuke you over that. He could bring discipline into your life through trial and difficulty to just refine you. And I would say that it's particularly the case when you are suffering the effects of sin in this life or when someone is sinning against you. Or it could be some combination of all of the above. Because at the end of the day, our main battle in life isn't against persecution, it isn't against suffering, and it isn't against people. It's against our own sin that remains. Because it alone is what separates us from God. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Or maybe you've never heard it before, so let me just recount it quickly for you. At the end of the book of Genesis, we learn about Joseph, and Joseph is one of 12 brothers. And he's one of the younger brothers, yet he's favored by his father, And his brothers don't like that. They're jealous of him. And so to get back at Joseph, they first think they're going to kill him, but then decide, well, let's not kill him. Let's just sell sell him into slavery. And so they sell off their brother into slavery, thinking he's basically as good as dead and he's gone. Joseph goes into slavery. And in the midst of that, he actually, God shows favor to him and he rises up in authority within the household that he finds himself in. But then he's wrongly accused and thrown in jail and he spends years in jail. 
Then through that, he rises to power again because he can, uh, and influence again because he can interpret dreams. A famine hits the land, but Joseph has made provision for the people of Egypt. His brothers, who once thought that he was now dead, came to Egypt to find food, and Joseph's the head honcho. And Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. And it's in that moment that Joseph could choose to be vindictive towards his brothers. He could choose retribution towards his brothers, but instead, he sees what God is up to. See, all throughout the narrative of Joseph's life and his story, it says God is with Joseph. God is with him. And at the end of Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now that good, we could look at that and say, well, clearly the good is, is that God preserved his people by sending Joseph ahead to make provision for them, to have food so that the people of God might endure. And that's right. And that's true. But the other good that came through this suffering was Joseph was refined just in his own life, and his own heart. Because when we go back and read about Joseph's early life, we recognize Joseph is arrogant and he's proud and he's self-focused. Through his unjust suffering, God used this to root this out of his life and transform him to be a humble servant leader. What Joseph's brothers did was wrong and it was sin. What Potiphar and his household did to Joseph was wrong and it was sin. But God allowed this discipline into Joseph's life. He allowed it to renew the image of God in Joseph, to make him like his Savior who would come into the world hundreds of years later to die for Joseph. This has been the case for me even now in my life. And especially during the most difficult trial, the most difficult period of suffering in my life to date. The time when I was lied about, slandered, insulted, accused, shamed, pushed down, kicked while I was down, told I needed to change, but also told that I will never change. This is a traumatic time in my life. My wife and I are still suffering the effects of trauma. It was a horrendous time. But God, but God was at work in all of it. He he was at work in our church. He was at work in my own life. He was refining me, rooting sin out of my life, rebuking me for pride, for finding my identity in something besides Jesus, for my self-sufficiency, for my fear of man, for the list that goes on and on and on. God was humbling me through intense humiliation to make me more like my Savior. And I absolutely do not at all, in any way, shape, or form, want to go through that again. But I rejoice that God saw fit to bring it into my life. I am thankful for what God did and what he is continuing to do in me. And that that was the way he wanted to grow me. That was the way he wanted to teach me. It was extremely painful, but it has, I believe, I hope, yielded peaceful fruit of righteousness. As God was seeking to transform me from one degree of glory to another. And the crazy thing is, I still have a long ways to go. So what might it be for you? Maybe something in your life right now, circumstance, 
where you live, the job you have, something as it relates to school or your roommates, your finances, maybe your marital status, that you are married and in a difficult marriage or you'd like to be married. Maybe it's with your kids, especially challenging or the desire for you to have children and you haven't been able to. Maybe it's some real suffering, whether weakness or sickness, mentally or physically. Maybe you're struggling with the consequences of your sin. Maybe you're just in a difficult relationship, whether in your family, with friends, or even people in community. Maybe you're experiencing real persecution for your faith in Jesus. Let me be clear in this. What I don't want you to think that I'm saying is that we shouldn't be praying for God to bring healing into our life. Man, we should be praying fervently for God to heal, to relieve our distress, to rescue us out of a difficult situation. We should pray for that boldly. But it doesn't mean, but I mean, what it does mean is that we should also just as fervently ask God in the midst of that, God, what are you seeking to do in me as I walk through these very real struggles? God, what are you teaching me? And I really want you to take some, some time to think about that. Take some time to pray, to talk in community about it. Because if you miss this, you can become dismayed. You can become paralyzed, bitter, angry. In some circumstances and situations you find yourself in, you could actually run away from them. But no matter what, if you miss this, you will not be able to move forward. Suffering and trial have the very real ability to disrupt faith, to provoke uncertainty, to lead to despair, to lead to apathy. But this text in Hebrews is an encouragement to see all of them in a different way. At its core, this comes down to what you believe about God. Do you believe that he is good? Do you believe that he is sovereign and faithful to his plans and his purposes and his people? All discipline from God is corrective and redemptive. Therefore, it is purposeful. God is maturing his children through corrective and redemptive love. And when we grasp this, when you grasp this, when I grasp this, it changes everything for us. It's like having blurred or obstructed vision, but then having corrective surgery. Everything becomes clearer for us. And when our view is less obstructed, we can look to our source of hope and we can fix our eyes on Jesus. When I was going through this period of suffering and struggle and refinement in my own life, a text that came to mind to me, for me over and over again is one that I'd reflected on before. But it became so much more real and so much more tangible to me because of that trial, because of that difficulty. And so I want to read it over you this morning. Put your pen down, put your phone down, just listen to God's word read over you. 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 through 25. Peter, writing to a church, to a group of people who are struggling and suffering, says this, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Man, that's my Jesus. And he's gone before me, enduring for me so that I might die to sin in my life and live to righteousness. That's my Jesus that while he is still working on me and in me in the midst of a broken world and a broken life, that I might not grow weary, that I might not be faint-hearted along the way. He didn't just do that for me. He did that for you too. See, the amazing thing that God might be up to in your life in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering is that you don't live in a vacuum. You live with a watching world around you in a world that is just abhors suffering, that abhors difficulty and trial, that will do anything at any cost to get it out of their lives. But when you as a follower of Christ walk through suffering and do it in a way that honors God, the world watches that and sees something different, that you have a hope, a real hope. You're enduring with a very real grace of a very real God in your life, and God could use that to call more people to himself. And if you're not a follower of Christ, let me just say this morning, this text isn't particularly comforting you in the same way as it is for someone who knows Jesus. In fact, I, should, I would say that it actually should invoke some fear or pause in you because apart from Christ, the wrath of God still remains for you. So my hope and encouragement for you, if you don't know Christ, is it would cause you to slow down and think, maybe God, perhaps God is bringing challenge in your life right now to wake you up to your very real need of rescue. Your very real need of Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote famously in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That's true for all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. So listen to the small voice calling you to himself. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Brothers and sisters, you may be confused about the purposes of God in your life right now because of the difficulty of your particular situation or circumstance. And hardships will either distract your focus on Christ or intensify your focus on Christ, making you absolutely desperate for him. As one pastor has said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. But even when you don't know, you can still trust and at the very same time cry out to him, I believe God, help my unbelief. We see discipline in this way, then we can cease to be resentful or rebellious, but instead calm and quiet our soul. In those moments, we're attuned to the heart of our God and attentive to his spirit, and we can endure. Which is why he says what he does in verses 12 through 13. Therefore, in light of all that truth, in light of all that reality, lift your drooping hands 
Strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you're going through or will go through, even when you don't know exactly what God is up to, I want this for you. God wants this for you. That you lift your drooping hands, that you'd be able to continue on that path. That you wouldn't have a leg or a foot or anything out of joint, but you'd be healed to continue to move forward in hope. And I can say that to you this morning because I've experienced it in my own life. I can say that to you this morning because my Redeemer lives and He is good and He is at work in your life. Be encouraged. But man, also encourage those around you. Those who are in despair. Those who are about to give up. Verses 12 through 13 is a whole community effort. It's why we need one another. We cannot do this alone. At one time, it'll be you that's struggling, and at another time, it'll be someone sitting next to you. And pick one another up. Run the race together. Endure together. If we believe that all discipline in any form has a purpose, then in the midst of it, we can ask, God, what are you showing me? What are you teaching me? So what might God be seeking to root out or refine in you right now with whatever it is that you're going through? Will you ask him that this week? As one pastor said, he probably will not tell you why it's your turn or why it's happening now or why there is so much pain or why it lasts this long. But he has told you what you need to know. It is the love of an all-wise father to a child. So will you trust him? Let me conclude by reading a similar exhortation from Paul who suffered greatly in this life. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Keep moving forward in faith. God disciplines those he loves. We take communion every week as a church. And we do this to remind, be reminded of the cost of rescue. To be reminded at, at what lengths God would go to to call us out of darkness and death and bring us into light and life, to bring us home. We eat the bread every week as a reminder of Christ's body broken for us. We drink the cup as a reminder of Christ's blood shed for us. Jesus endured so that you might endure, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christ suffered so that your suffering and your struggles in this life would not be meaningless. So church, as we take communion together this morning, look to Jesus. Be reminded of the great love that the Father has lavished on you. You are his child and he loves you dearly. Those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion. And the reason for that is because this is a demonstration of our hope in Jesus. And so if you don't yet know Jesus, if you haven't yet placed your hope and your faith in him, we just ask you to hang out in your seat. And we want you to take Christ today. So pray to God. God, would you save me today? I'm ready to take that step. I know I need Christ. Pray and tell God that. And then let somebody around you know that you're ready to start that relationship with Jesus so we can help you 
know what it looks like to both know and follow Christ. And maybe you're not quite there yet, but you want to learn more about Christ. Let somebody around you know that's why this church is here. We want to journey with you towards Christ. And those of you that are followers of Christ, I invite you forward to the tables in the front or the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are faithful. God, you love us and you're committed to us, committed to our good. So God, we praise your name this morning because of that. Help us as your people to see any discipline in whatever way, shape, or form it comes into our life as corrective and redemptive love. That you are committed to our, our holiness. You're committed to making us more like Jesus. And that you can use anything to bring that about. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would show us what you're doing in the midst of those times. Help us to remind one another of that. That you, our good Father, disciplines those you love. And Lord, help us to walk forward in faith. Give us endurance. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to consider Jesus, and then go and tell the world about him. Even in the midst of our suffering, may we suffer and struggle well before you, admitting our weakness, admitting our struggles, but displaying our hope remains in you, our living God. Father, we don't always know why we're going through what we're going through. We don't always know what exactly it is that you're up to, but we know that you are committed to us, that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. Help us to rest in that truth. Give us peace and joy. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.